What's up? It's episode 123, Pain Points of Wealth, and we are in a classic bull market. Market's been climbing a wall of worry all the way since October. Meanwhile, the Fed finally skips, pauses, stops interest rates. I'm not sure if they'll raise again, but we know inflation continues to come down, dropping like a rock. Meanwhile, wages continue to stay strong as unemployment stays at record lows. Folks, this doesn't look like a recession. We got a great show for you today. We're going to break it down for you. We got two special guests today. We have my colleague, Bob's colleague, certified financial planner at Payne Capital, star on CNBC, Courtney Garcia. And we've got Steve Forbes today talking about his life, his view of the markets right now, the economy. It's going to be one of the best shows ever. Stay tuned. Check it out. Well, Robbie had the uh, Federal Reserve much awaited meeting come out and uh, even used the word skip, pause. I don't know what it is, but they don't have any certainty of what they're going to do going forward. Now, you got to remember, this is the Federal Reserve that told us a year and a half ago they weren't even thinking about even thinking about raising interest rates. And now they're telling us they're not even thinking about even thinking about making cuts in interest rates. What do you think is going to happen, Court? Yeah, and I, I think what's interesting, too, is the markets really had been assuming they were going to pause, which they did, and that's great news, but that they were going to, again, raise interest rates next month. But they did come out pretty definitively and say, there is nothing set for next month. We are not definitively doing anything, which I think ultimately is a good sign. You're seeing inflation come down, and they say that they're data dependent, and if the data keeps showing inflation coming down, they've ultimately got to follow that. So whether rates just stay here or eventually come lower, that's all, that's going to be a great thing for the markets in the long run. And just kind of like a, I digress, maybe digress here a little bit, but when you listen to Jerome Powell speak, he almost sounds like he's like a chat GPT bot or something. <laughs> it's, like, it's, kind of, it's kind of frightening. And I usually listen to do it on audio, like CNBC, if I'm listening to Courtney or if I'm listening to Jerome Powell. Um, but you're right. He basically said that they don't know what they're doing next month. And markets pretty much like that, right? They sold off initially, then they didn't sell off. But like they have a they have an opportunity here to win, win big, right? I mean, at this point, if we don't go into recession, the Fed's going to come out the heroes. They don't want to screw it up. So my guess is they're probably done raising interest rates. Well, I don't know if you caught this, guys, but they raised, not lowered, they raised their forecast for GDP to 1%. Now, anything positive on GDP is not recessionary, right? Isn't that growth? Um, so I thought that was interesting that they're they're the ones that are calling for a soft landing now. And and if they do, I'll tell you what, they should take a victory lap uh, because I think they've been threading the needle really well here. I don't know. I think we made fun of them on a lot of shows in the past, Bob, but uh, we can pretend like we were their we were their champions the whole time. Um, but, you know, what's amazing right now is, to your point, and this is something actually in our view, not only are we not going to go into recession, but, you know, from what we're looking at right now, economic growth is actually going to pick up this year, Courtney, which is kind of crazy. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's what people aren't really realizing is the economy is in a better place than people realize. And when the earnings were going to fall off a cliff this earnings season, they didn't. Um, unemployment is still really low. There's still a lot more jobs than people are to fill them, which is keeping wages sustainable to the point that people can sustain this inflation. So realistically, we're in a good spot that people can get through this. Hopefully inflation does come down, which all points to a soft landing that the markets just simply haven't been pricing in. You've really only been seeing basically eight companies have been leading this entire stock market. But you're finally seeing the rest of the market starting to rally around and actually come back up. And that's because this is, I think we're at a lot better position than people realize and markets need to get on board with that. Yeah, there's a lot of things that, uh, there's a lot of stimulus in the economy. Now there's still, 
the stimulus that the government gave, but you also have this gigantic stimulus of the greatest generation of our time, the baby boomers, um, who are, you know, retiring. Um, by the way, I think there's only about 10 or 15% of baby boomers who aren't retired yet. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm holding the fort for these guys. But for the ones that are retired, they're, they're, every day they're making a decision. Should I keep all my money and preserve it and give it to the kids and let them blow it on a Ferrari or a Lamborghini? Or should maybe I should go out and enjoy myself? And I'll tell you what, baby boomers are spending. They're, they're, the restaurants are, are booked. You know, the healthcare industry is booming. You know, they're playing pickleball. They're messing themselves up. They, you know, orthopedic surgeons are having, making a fortune this year. Knee replacements, hip replacements. Man, I'll tell you what, it's a booming economy in healthcare. Bob, it sounds like your life right now. You know, Rye, it's it's my life. Um, actually, it's your mom's life. I'm just living it. Yeah, and even on the other side of the spectrum, when you look at the millennials side of things, Bob, that also has been showing they are spending as well. And that's actually really, I think, what's been holding up the housing market, which everybody thought housing was going to fall off a cliff here and home builders weren't going to do well. What's happening is you have all your millennials who are starting families and they're really starting to get in the peak of their careers. And so they're actually just as much as baby boomers are spending. So are your millennials, which are the two largest generations out there right now. And I don't think people are appreciating how much spending power that those two generations have and that it is not slowing down anytime soon. Yeah, no, that's a great point. You just bought a house. And I know, baby, you have your second baby on the way, Courtney. So you're like the quintessential millennial right now. The other big boon, I mean, just like this is kind of like an easy tale when I call it, is like people are going back to the office. You know, productivity fell off a cliff during the pandemic. I mean, believe it or not, people aren't as productive from home. I suspect Bob takes at least two two naps a day. Like I try to call him in the afternoon, you you can't get him. Um, you know, but I think you know the fact that now you're seeing this with a lot of tech companies have talked about how they're making people come back to the office. I think that trend's going to continue, which is going to bring huge productivity gains going into next year. And productivity is disinflationary. It's good for company margins. And the only thing I'll talk about with artificial intelligence because like it's so tiring to hear about it is that's going to benefit. We talked about this before every company. Every company is going to be able to utilize technology basically to make their businesses more productive, which means margins go up. All this stuff is happening. It's great for every industry, not just tech. You know, another big tailwind uh, I don't think a lot of folks are talking about is this onshoring and nearshoring. Uh, capital spending is at a record high, right? You look at the number of construction workers, you would think, well, the housing industry slowed down, but you know, Housing's not the only thing construction workers do, right? They're building offices, they're building plants, plants and equipment. Uh, a lot of, a lot of manufacturing is coming back to the U.S. And we're seeing that in the numbers. That's going to impact the earnings. That's going to impact the uh, profit margins. No, no, that's huge. If you look at construction for manufacturing in place this year, it's up 67%. It's going to be a bona fide boom. That's going to be so much capital expenditure uh, into the economy. And this is, again, this is why everything's not, not only is it not, are we not landing here, but it's actually heating up, which is the complete opposite narrative, by the way, from what you've been hearing out there uh, with the talking heads, as we like to call them. Now, Courtney is a talking head, but she's really, really smart. She's not like the other. That's are you, Ryan. <laughs> I thought, I thought Courtney, I thought Courtney did a phenomenal job the other day on CNBC when I asked her a question. Courtney, I know you've been bullish and the market's been going up and you know, if you had to choose in the next 12 months, would you invest in the S&P 500 or would you put it into a 5% one-year T-bill? And your answer was brilliant. You know, you said, hey, for my money, you know, my recommendation is put it into the S&P 500, but I have a lot of clients that, you know, want to buy the three-month T-bill or the six-month T-bill. And I think this is where 
I think our show can be very helpful to people because it's all about investing. While most of those people are scrambling to buy that three-month T-bill, our average portfolio went up 5% over that 30-day period. Um, so it's, you know, those returns, they come in spurts. And if you're not in it, you're not going to win it. Exactly. Especially right now, right? I mean, markets, while they are doing well, they are officially in a new bull market, meaning they're 20% higher than they were in our lows in October. We're still nowhere near the highs that the, we were at early last year. So there's still a lot of opportunity to continue that upward momentum. And that's where I think you want to make sure that you are invested in the markets because they still have a lot of upside to go. And I would say the upside on the markets is actually probably bigger than the as, as great as a 5% treasury sounds. I think likely the markets are going to do better than that. And so you do want to make sure that you're going to be invested on that side of things because long-term you do need the growth and that that's really where you're going to see things. Well, it's a good point. There's actually something you mentioned the other day, Courtney, is about uh, the market having bad breath. Um, actually, I think Bob coined that phrase. So I'll give him some credit for that. Just because you had a handful of stocks that really drew, drove the S&P return this year. But what happens typically after you see just a small coterie of stocks move up, you tend to get a broadening out and the S&P tends to go up another 11% after a big move in just a handful of stocks. So it's the opposite of what everyone's saying. You know, when you have a, a smaller amount of breath, eventually that tends to widen out. That's exactly what you've seen. Like, how do you get back a move in small caps of 6% in one month? You miss that. You're not getting that back. And that's my biggest pet peeve right now with all these, quote unquote, experts on Wall Street. They're saying, are we really on a precipice of a bull market? Is it real? I'm like, dude, we're already in a bull market. You missed it. Admit you're wrong. As Bob likes to say, it's OK to be wrong. It's not OK to stay wrong. And I think that's the biggest sin of these strategists right now is they can't just come out and say, look, we totally screwed up. We're wrong. We're in a bull market. They're doubling down on their wrong opinion, which is just really annoying. You know, uh, Chris isn't here right now. He's over in Germany riding his bikes in the mountains and, and on another vacation ride, by the way. Um, you know, he, he's, he's definitely improving the economy, the global GDP. But, you know, Chris likes to say, you know, invest in the market you have, not the market you want. You know, there's so many strategies going, well, we didn't have a perfect bottom. You know, we didn't have the valuations where they should be. You know, the Fed didn't do what it was supposed to do. So, it, it, you know, our, our industry tends to bring a lot of analytical people. Uh, and they're probably the worst people you could have run your portfolio because you can analyze this to death and the market, it doesn't agree with what your conclusions are. You know, you're just out of luck. Yes, Bob, as I like to say, I'd rather be lucky than good. All right, this is the tipping point. This is where we pinpoint the pain point having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. Of course, that's P-A-Y-N-E. And today we have a very special guest on the show. We have my friend, Steve Forbes. Steve's the editor-in-chief editor of Forbes Media. He ran as a candidate for the Republican Party back in 1996, the year I graduated from high school, and 2000. And Steve attended Princeton while he founded Business Today, a magazine that survives to this day. He's also the host of the webcast, What's Ahead, and the author of a number of books, the most recent he co-authored with uh, Nathan Lewis and Elizabeth Ames call it inflation. And on top of all, he has a wife that he's been with for I don't know how many years. I'll have to ask him, but with five children. So needless to say, Steve has been a very busy man. I don't even know how many grandchildren. I'll have to ask you today. Uh, Steve, thanks for being on the show. And I guess I'll start with that. Um, how many grandkids and how, how many years have you been married? Uh, well, we have uh, five daughters and uh, been uh, coming on uh, 52 years. Five grandkids. And uh, which are uh, great fun because you have all the joy and none of the headaches. <laughs> <laughs> I understand well, that. 
With five daughters, I'm sure you have some scars. Well, the uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, daughters are much harder on the mothers than the fathers and uh, uh, during the teen years. Uh, but uh, two things. One is uh, I always recommend to parents during the teen years is to remember what Abraham Lincoln said under very different circumstances. This too shall pass. <laughs> and and the, and the other thing uh, to, to keep in mind is research shows that daughters take better care of their parents than the sons do. So uh, like a caretaker 401k, daughters are apparently better than the sons. I've got a daughter on the way, so this is good news. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're set, Steve, <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, but, but I That's thought we could go back to <laughs> That's the hope. <laughs> we'll have to check in with you later and see how that works out. Um, but I thought, you know, we could start back in the beginning. Um, you know, what was it like you know, growing up? You know, I'm in a family business. Uh, we're in a family business. But what was it like growing up in the Forbes household? And, and where did you grow up? I don't even, I'm not even sure I know. I grew up in uh, New Jersey. I uh, was one of uh, five, uh, three brothers and one sister. I was the oldest and the oldest. So uh, I saw great merit in primogenitor. And, uh, and uh, so growing up, I don't know whether it was genetics, but when I was in grade school, I occasionally turned out new sheets for my classmates. And uh, one time I had a little hiccup when I wanted to grade my teachers, since they're grading me, I thought it was appropriate to uh, grade them and give comments on what I thought of them. That did not get very far. But, uh, but uh, so as you mentioned in college, I helped uh, co-found with two others, Business Today, which uh, still still is around online, magazine, and a great couple of great international conferences they do each year. These are undergraduates. And then uh, after school, after a stint in the National Guard, I got a good job offer and uh, took it. And so uh, when kids ask me, uh, how do you uh, succeed in business? I say, uh, one avenue is closed off to you. And that is picking parents who already own a business. Which I can attest to growing up in a, in a wealth management business. It was kind of like uh, not many choices when you're the oldest, I feel like, Steve. Well, the nice thing is, though, uh, until a certain age, you're usually bigger than your siblings. And uh, so uh, I could always enforce things with my siblings. And then brother number two, brother my brother Robert, around 13, 14, got bigger than me. So I went from uh, uh, hands to uh, diplomacy to try to get my way. <laughs> did the rest of your siblings end up in the business as well? Uh, they did it uh, all at some point. Uh, I'm the remaining one. One of my brothers, uh, Kip, uh, still does occasional things for us, especially for our uh, international conferences. He, uh, we're doing one next year in the Philippines. We do an annual conference, get about 400 uh, business tycoons, uh, mostly from Asia, but around the world. This year we're meeting in Singapore. The next year we're doing the Philippines. And oh, wow. uh, my brother was there uh, with the new president uh, lining up uh, support for the conference. So uh, we're looking forward to that. By the way, the Philippines is very interesting. Uh, they uh, pulled away from the U.S. And uh, we're very anti-American, and the new president, President Marcos, uh, was quite willing to have good relations with Beijing. Uh, but Beijing uh, continued to bully uh, the Philippines, 
claim areas that belong to the Philippines, harass their fishing ships and the like. And now, uh, which was unthinkable a couple of years ago, the Philippines are asking us to put in military bases because of uh, what they see as aggression from China. So, you know, as Ryan mentioned, you ran for president. Is there any chance we can get you on the ticket for this uh, upcoming election? Uh, No, I I, I tried it twice, and uh, I'm an agitator now. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm sure sure my uh, children were very proud when their father was running for president, but they must have had uh, some uh, mixed feelings when they saw their inheritance go for bumper stickers, radio ads, and things (laughs) like that. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, I, I, I do my running now on the treadmill. I leave uh, the political running to others. Have any of your daughters been interested in either the family business or maybe politics themselves or, you know, kind of following in your footsteps? Uh, none are interested in politics. I never got into it in terms of uh, running for office until uh, uh, circumstances in the mid-1990s. But uh, I have uh, one daughter in the business now doing very well. Thankfully, she's smarter than I am. Uh, everyone says when she does interviews and the like, she is so bright, and I wish I could take credit for it, but the mother gets the credit for that. And then uh, a couple of other daughters help out from time to time. So, uh, yes, uh, it's uh, going in the right direction. And uh, I think the best way to get them involved is to say, I don't want you in the business, and they want to get in the business. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually yeah, a really I put that little scarcity yeah. to work. I like it every time. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Actually, Bob Bob forced me to go into the business, so I, I can't relate to that. <laughs> you know, I know. I know. Uh, I can see on your unhappy countenance how uh, miserable you you are. <laughs> <laughs> the struggle is real, Steve. Um, I, I guess I'm curious about too. What do you remember your grandfather Bertie uh, well? And you know, he was a Scottish immigrant. I'm just curious, what was he like? Um, uh, I, I do remember him, but I was uh, about a uh, little under seven when, unfortunately, he uh, died uh, back in uh, 1954. But I do remember that uh, his Scottish brogue, he was an immigrant from Scotland. He was one of 10 children, great school education, and uh, came here and uh, wanted to be a business writer and uh, uh, started writing uh, about business. And he from a young age, he uh, exhibited real entrepreneurship. Uh, he taught uh, himself shorthand in Scotland, did a stint huh. in a couple of other places like the Boer War in South Africa. And then when he came to the U.S. in the early 1900s, he got off the boat in New York and uh, no one would hire him. So he went to an editor one day and made him an offer. He said, I w- he couldn't do this today, but he said, I'll work for you for free for several weeks. If I show you my work, I uh, trust you'll hire me. Now, my grandfather had no idea whether the guy would just use his free labor and then toss him out. But he knew that if right. he just continued to knock on doors, it was going to go nowhere. He'd be back on the boat. So uh, he did get the job, but he was so full of energy and ambition that he went to another editor using a different name and got a job yeah. there, too, as a business writer. And probably one of his happiest moments was when the two editors got in an argument once as to who had the best business reporter. It was my grandfather in both cases. <laughs> so, amazing. So, so uh, after a while, he, uh, uh, writing about entrepreneurs and the like, decided that instead of just writing about it, he would do it himself. 
So in 1917, not a propitious time, we had World War I, the Great War, uh, he started Forbes magazine. And, uh, but as he always had the, knew that entrepreneurial streak, as you know, the Scottish uh, people have a reputation for being very tight with money. And my grandfather was a uh, fit that prototype. And uh, one day, <clears throat> his friends thought maybe he uh, had taken leave of his senses. He bought a couple of fancy suits and then rented a room at the Waldorf Astoria, then the biggest, fanciest hotel in the world. And uh, yeah. they asked, what are you doing? My grandfather realized that the makers and shakers of the day, the teens and 20s, congregated at the end of the day at the Waldorf Astoria. And he figured if he was there as a guest of the hotel and properly dressed, he could get to know these people in a way that you never could with an interview across a desk or something, a table, and uh, get information and insights that you wouldn't get otherwise. So uh, he, he, he knew when to uh, make investments and uh, when, 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 when to take risks. So uh, we, we grew up with stories about him, but I remember him when I, my memory of him was uh, he had very long hair. And, really? And uh, this was the 50s when everyone was uptight. And I once asked, after my grandfather died, I asked my father, oh, why, why did he have long hair? My father explained that uh, my grandfather believed that when you lived your biblical span of three score years and ten, you could do anything you wanted. And so wow. one, of the, one of the things That's he so did. Cool. That's so cool. One, one of the things he did was let his hair grow. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so he he was a remarkable figure. Was he kind of the beginning of the counterculture in a way? Like was he kind of on the forefront of that type of movement or? Well, he, he, he combined both. Uh, you know, there's a time and place for, for everything, including counterculture. And, uh, but also, though, uh, my grandfather, we learned stories. You know, he did very well in the 1920s. And uh, 1928, he was a, also a syndicated columnist for the Hearst newspapers, William Randolph Hearst, who was the model for the, that movie Citizen Kane. But he was the biggest media mogul of the time. And... Uh, Hearst offered to uh, buy Forbes magazine for the equivalent today of tens and tens of millions of dollars. My grandfather, uh, being an independent type, proudly turned it down. And four years later, with the Great Depression, his company was bankrupt in all but name. Uh, he had a wow. capital loss through uh, his syndicated earnings, through uh, freelancing, and also uh, putting in uh, what uh, the employees dubbed Scotch Week. Every fourth week, you didn't get paid. It was a 25% in effect pay cut, but people were happy to have a job during those desperate right. years. My grandfather mm -hmm. uh, still paid himself a check, but he uh, just put it in a safe. There was no money in the bank to uh, cover it. And so one of his, the proudest uh, events in his life was years later, as he nursed the company back to health, he was able to cash all those checks that had accumulated in the safe because uh, at the time there was no money in the bank. And that's uh, incredible. One other, one, one other story uh, to share with you. My father, uh, during the summer as a kid, would work in what they called the mail cage in the basement. You know, in those days, you opened up things physically, orders, advertising orders, and the like. And every afternoon, my grandfather would come down because the bookkeeper had an office down there. And invariably, uh, the, the, the news was always grim. 
But one day, the bookkeeper said to my grandfather, he said, Mr. Forbes, I have great news. We had a profit last month. And uh, my grandfather looked at him and said, young man, I don't give a damn what your books show. How much money do we have in the bank? Done. Lesson on cash flow. <laughs> a keep it simple uh, strategy, I think, is always the mm-hmm. best. Yeah. So uh, we grew up with those stories. So uh, it, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know whether that's uh, genetics or uh, nature or whatever. But anyway, uh, always been interested in the business. <laughs> you know, Steve, my, my son must know, you know, your family because he does that to me every once in a while. He, instead of giving me my paycheck, he puts it in a safe somewhere. <laughs> and um, I've been waiting to see those. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when I can uh, cash those. Don't look at the new Ferrari in the driveway, Bob. There's nothing to do with you. All right. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I, I love to hear how much your grandfather, you know, inspired really it, it's at least three generations. And I'm just curious, how do you keep that going, especially for your kids, your grandkids who haven't met him and trying to make sure that those values are still instilled in them? Like, how do you guys keep that going throughout your family? Make I, I think uh, first uh, uh, family stories. Uh uh, last of my father's uh, siblings uh, died a couple of years ago. He lived to the age of 91, which uh, we glorified in because uh, most of uh, our family wow. died in their mid and early 70s. So uh, Uncle Wallace was, uh, we took inspiration. Maybe there's hope for us. And uh, But he, 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 he wrote down some of these uh, stories. So uh, it's family uh, stories. And uh, but also uh, how 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 you uh, conduct yourself. One of the things my father did when we were growing up is he took us to business events, and uh, the idea being, uh, even if you don't want to go in the business, understand uh-huh. where uh, your bread is buttered. Understand that it just doesn't happen. Just go on trees. <clears throat> and then as we got a little older, we were expected to uh, contribute to these meetings. Who was there? Why was that person there? Uh, what should you do to help uh, nurture a future uh, customer for Forbes? So uh, in, in that sense, so it's uh, family lore and doing. And so even if they don't go in the business, uh, at least they understand uh, it's like a garden. You don't uh, tend to the weeds. Uh, you're not going to have much of a garden. It's, it's a constant thing. My father liked to say, if uh, if you think you've arrived, you're ready to be shown the door. <laughs> I love I love that. And, you know, it's kind of similar in our our household. You know, I think I had to sit and listen to my dad on the phone for hours at a time. Um, he used to call it singing for his lunch. Um, and but it was a remarkable education. I mean, I would sit there maybe filing papers for you, Dad, or, or whatever, and he would just be on the phone, you know, constantly, um, and just you know, you would hear him pitch all day, you know, talking to people. People were upset about their money. You know, the markets were volatile, and uh, I mean, it's quite an education just to be there and, uh, and and watch. I think that's actually one of the best ways to learn. Seeing stories and reading stories is uh, is, is good. People like to learn about people. One of the things uh, I'm involved in now is uh, doing a series on achievement. Steve Forbes on achievement, three minute videos biographies of people who made the world that we live in, whose names aren't much recognized today. <clears throat> We're doing it with Free to Choose. It's called uh, the foundation. The specific website is, is it, I-Z-Z-I-T dot org. 
little unusual name, but they go to tens of thousands of educators and hundreds of thousands of students. And these uh, videos are uh, not only interesting, but also have a free market lesson. So whether it's uh, Malcolm McLean, who uh, created the, the box, as they call it, container shipping, which revolutionized trade, or uh, others like Elaine uh, Bryant, uh, she had a real, real name was Lena Himmelstein, who created uh, uh, for, for women maternity dresses a hundred years ago. You did not have maternity clothing. You, if you wanted it, you had to have it made for yourself. She made it uh, flexible for working people. And at the time, amazing, this is a little side thing, 110 years ago, newspapers would not run any ads suggesting pregnancy. Huh. It uh, was just, just not done. And so she and her husband had to work hard to persuade one of the New York newspapers, there are tons of them at the time, to run ads for these uh, maternity dresses she was making. And they finally found one who did it. But they also had to go into, uh, they, that's one reason why they started a huge catalog business, was uh, to get around the fact that uh, most newspapers wouldn't uh, let them advertise these maternity clothes. And then uh, she uh, then realized that a lot of women uh, uh, were not uh, size two. And so uh, she came up with clothing for uh, women of uh, larger sizes. So quite the, 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 these unsung uh, pioneers who uh, do great things. And the free market lesson is uh, when you have real free markets, uh, you uh, meet the needs and wants of others in a way that you don't get in a top-down uh, society. Many of these people that we're covering uh, were disdained and had to go through barriers. and. Uh, that's why uh, that's why I make it three minutes. Lesson there, one final one I have to mention is Annie Malone. Nobody knows her today, but she was the daughter of former slaves. And at a time when women weren't even allowed to vote, uh, she realized that a lot of the hair products and uh, for, for women, for African-American women, were terrible. She was always interested in chemistry, <clears throat> so she uh, created... Uh, new new shampoos and the like and the hair devices and she at the height of her empire had 75,000 agents around the wow. world selling these products door to door she became the first uh, <clears throat> african-american millionaire uh, today she'd be a billionaire and the free market lesson there is not only did she do well she ended up owning a whole block in chicago uh, not only did she do well, but those 75,000 agents learned and did well. Uh, one of them actually uh, spun off and started her own uh, hair care business, did very well, Madam Walker. and uh, But also uh, meeting the needs of a unmet need in the marketplace, but also enabling tens of thousands of others to uh, have a better life. And Steve, where can you find these stories? What's the uh, site people go to? It's uh, izzit, I-Z-Z-I-T dot org. Uh, slash Forbes, and uh, uh, we have uh, nine of them up now, ten of them up now, and we're now working on our second season, and very, very, very interesting people. Uh, one of the ones we're doing on our second season, another one that pops into mind, is uh, Clarence Saunders. Nobody knows that name. He came out of Memphis. He invented the modern supermarket. People don't realize that 120 years ago, 110 years ago, when you buy food, you would go into a store and the, all the uh, products were behind a counter and you gave the clerk a piece of paper writing down what you wanted. And they'd then go to the shelves and get the product. 
Uh, you wouldn't even know what the price specifically was. You had to ask the clerk, and then you'd go and uh, pay for it or put it on your charge account, as they called it in those days. He started the idea that you would pick the products off the shelves and the products would have the price on them. So you didn't have to ask a clerk for them. We think that's the most simple thing in the world. Basic yeah. thing in the world. Yeah. But he, he, he pioneered it. He pioneered that. having a shopping basket, then a shopping cart. So these people who improve everyday life, uh, we think uh, will be inspirational to younger people of uh, what it takes and uh, inspire them to uh, do things. See, this is why I'm always bullish. You know, just to shift gears here a little bit, the um, you know all we're hearing about recently is artificial intelligence and AI. What kind of impact do you see that having on having on your industry? Uh, yes, well, uh, the uh, rise of the internet certainly uh, turned our world upside down, and uh, we uh, we survived and thrived. Uh, uh, one of the things you have to do, Bob, in these situations is to remember what Peter Drucker, the late great management guru, whose books are still read occasionally in business schools. And uh, uh, what uh, Drucker said is every organization, whether it's academic, uh, profit, nonprofit, should always ask themselves, what is your purpose? What is it you are trying to do? What is it you are trying to achieve? And if you ask yourself that kind of question, you don't get less uh, hung up if the means to achieve those goals change. Uh, in our business, uh, the whole model went out the window with the internet. Internet uh, ruthlessly commoditizes everything. Now, back in the days of just print, we would print uh, several hundred articles a year. We had 26 issues a year. And so you'd maybe uh, publish eight, 900, 1,000 articles a year. Today, we still have uh, print uh, a few issues a year. But online now, we have 2,500 contracted contributors. And uh, so we run over 100,000 pieces a year online. Very, very different from what we did before. We do a lot of other things. But now to answer your question in AI, I don't know how it's going to disrupt it, but I know darn well now that people can just ask. Uh, give me a 5,000-word essay on the history of the garment industry or a 300-word uh, piece. You, you can do it verbally, as you know, at GPT, and uh, it does it instantly. So uh, there's going to be profound changes. And again, we're going to have to remind ourselves, and this just gets uh, to the whole thing about uh, uh, change. You know, you can eat well or sleep well, as the saying goes, but not both. Eating part, I have no problem with. Uh, the sleep <laughs> part, quite, 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 quite another. Yeah. And uh, by the way, artificial intelligence, there's a lot of hype now. You've all seen what's happened to NVIDIA and some of the other tech stocks. Uh, so there'll be the inevitable shakeout. Remember, I think we've had over 900 auto manufacturers in this country <laughs> over, yeah. the, over the years. So it uh, doesn't mean everyone's going to get rich on it. A handful yeah. will. There'll be Amazon-like companies coming along. But uh, artificial intelligence will profoundly and positively, mostly positively change our lives. Uh, it's going to take a lot of the uh, routine work out of the way. Uh, it's going to uh, eventually, in a few years, vastly speed up the approval of medicines instead of these 10-year, uh, 12-year trials for involving thousands and thousands of people. They'll come up with ways to uh, do that in a matter of months instead of years. And uh, I think one of the things a friend of mine, Mark Mills, said uh, why they choose the name artificial intelligence, which is really off-putting. 
Um, you know, we don't call airplanes artificial birds or cars, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> yeah. artificial horses. So uh, see see it as a see it as a as a positive tool. It's not going to take over the world because we do the software, and uh, and uh, so. Remember when the rise of electricity over 200 years ago, when that started to uh, come along, uh, that's how we got the, the novel Frankenstein. Oh, this thing, electricity, it gives life and God knows what monstrous things could come along. <laughs> that, that's a great point. And um, I'm relieved that it's not going to be like uh, Terminator, Steve. You've, you've made all my, <laughs> yes. and if, you know, I joked earlier on the show today, but if you listen closely, uh, Jay Powell sounds like a, a chat GPT bot. <laughs> he's not, well, he 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 would be uh, written off as uh, the the baby talk phase of a uh, chat GBT. <laughs> uh, we're not going to raise rates, but eventually we will raise rates. Yeah, yeah. Once said, if you think you need to raise rates, yeah, going to say a bad word. Just do it now. Get it over with. Fact of the matter is, it just goes to show. Sadly, despite four thousand years of experience with money. Uh, central bankers still don't understand inflation and money. No. You don't cure inflation by trashing the economy. Yeah. Uh, you do it by stabilizing the value of the dollar. Money measures value, you know, like the scales measure weight or clocks measure time. It just measures value. It makes it easier to buy and sell with each other. So we don't uh, try to battle obesity by changing scales. Uh, we change the number of ounces in a pound from 16 to 32. The weight goes down by half. There goes the obesity curve. No, uh, we, we, we know that was perfectly stupid. But unfortunately, that kind of uh, idiocy permeates monetary policy. They don't get it. So yeah. I don't think the Fed will be raising rates anytime soon. I think they realize that there are a lot of choppy waters in the economy. Best thing to do is leave it alone, but they won't. Nor will Congress, nor will the regulators. Yeah. Hopefully that'll change here. But, but all fairness, Ryan, to Jerome Powell, if he says everything, then we always can go back and claim, see, I was right. Remember he said that uh, initially inflation was transitory. Well, it turns out a lot of it ha happens to be transitory, and it's coming down very quickly. This other area well, that are being well, sticky. Yes, so. life is transitory, too. You know, so you <laughs> yeah. can uh, you, 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 you use semantics any way you wish. Yeah. So, Steve, let's, let's say let's say we did get you to run for president and you got elected. Um, what would you do different than what our current administration is doing? What would be the major changes? Well, well, well first, what I'll, appointment, put, Steve? I'll, I'll put Ryan in charge of the SEC. <laughs> 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 and. Uh, and uh, so uh, I'd, 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 I'd tell the Fed to back off. I've got some uh, things that they need to do. I'd just uh, overdo the whole institution. They should have uh, only a couple of things in mind. One, they do banking services for the government. If you look at their uh, balance sheet, which comes out every Thursday, you can find out in effect what the government has in the check in its checking account. And uh, and uh, so. Uh, you know, they provide banking service for the government, fine. They do regulation. If you want to leave it with the Fed, fine. Or if you want to put it somewhere else, fine. But it has a two, two purposes. One is to keep a stable value of the dollar. And two, deal with the occasional panics. Prices do happen. So you go in, do it, and then you get out. But uh, unlike the Brits who taught us the lending of last resort back in the 1860s, uh, the Fed, after 2008, uh, didn't let go. 
and they started doing things that never been done before, suppressing long rates, bloating their balance sheets, and it's totally, you know, we're going to be digging out of that mess for a long time. Doesn't mean we can't grow. Remember the 1980s when inflation was uh, brought under control, <clears throat> the economy boomed, but energy was in a depression. Agriculture was in a depression, even as the rest of the economy did well. So you can have pieces of it uh, uh, readjusting and have the economies all doing well. But uh, these clowns, after 2008, uh, decided uh, they'd have zero interest rates. There's never anything in history which would justify deliberately putting rent controls on uh, all types, all lengths of uh, money. We know rent controls don't work in the real estate market. They distort the market. They also distort the financial market. And a prime example is Apple. Apple, the greatest money machine ever. Why would Apple take on over $100 billion of debt? Uh, why? Yeah. Because the money was free. Exactly. And whatever interest charges yeah. there were, they could, uh, they could deduct them, tax deduction. So totally distorted the market, gave the central banks great power, and the politicians loved it. Because suddenly spending had no consequences. Right. Uh, it would be like putting ten thousand dollar charge in your credit card, and your monthly payment went down. <laughs> what's, what, what's not to like? And so debt. Government, you look at government debt; they all exploded, and that's why we're going to have shakeouts uh, in the months and years ahead from companies that are sort of counted on free money forever. Yeah. Just as you had the companies in the 80s get in trouble when uh, the assumption of 10% inflation uh, ceased to exist. It's true. Well, you had some great parties in the 80s, I heard, Steve. Um... Well, you were too young to get invited. You know, <laughs> baby, baby, babies were not cute as they were, were not invited to this. <laughs> it's unfortunate. I, I would have gotten a great education. Uh, um, Steve, I know you're a big proponent of the flat tax. Do you think we'll ever get there? Uh, the answer is uh, yes, and I'm uh, hopeful that uh, one of the many candidates who are running in 2024 will realize they have to have something to distinguish themselves from the others. Over 20 countries have the flat tax, and it works perfectly well. And uh, so, uh, yes, and uh, it's, not, it's not an economic issue. It's really a moral issue, moral issue in the sense of uh, the IRS tells us we spend six billion hours a year filling out tax forms. Uh, we spend two to hundred, four hundred billion dollars a year uh, fill, uh, complying with this monstrosity. It's over ten million words when you include all the regulations and court decisions and the like. Nobody knows what's in this thing. Utterly corrupt. Brings out the worst in us. So just go back twenty years. Imagine if all the uh, all the that hundred billion hours. All the literally trillions of dollars, instead of going with this idiot code, had gone instead for new products, new services, new medical mm -hmm. devices, new cures for diseases, how much better off we'd be. So gargantuan yeah. opportunity cost with this current code. And yeah. so the faster we get rid of it, the happier everyone will be. And uh, so I hope uh, one of the candidates will uh, glom onto it, just as I hope already now, uh, a uh, couple of candidates are taking after the Federal Reserve. Uh, DeSantis took a pop at them uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, went after them in a Wall Street Journal piece. I hope uh, that gets developed because uh, this powerful agency uh, continues to mess things up 
and people are too scared to take them on. Deep Forest for president in 2024, number one. Uh, <laughs> and number two, I'm going to switch gears on you, Steve. Um, I'm going to ask you probably the most important question of this interview. If you can choose one album that after hearing it for the first time, it changed how you viewed the world forever, what is that album and how did it change you? Um, well, it wouldn't be an album. The Beatles in this, you know, back in dark ages in the 1960s, yes. had a couple of albums, and, uh, and uh, which were uh, groundbreakers. So uh, it's no no one album. It's a series of uh, artists. The Beatles were very popular in our household as well. Um, that, that's probably a better question. What's your favorite Beatles album? Because there are some great ones. Well, I like the one that had uh, the tax man. Um, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> I, I had them all, and uh, like baseball cards, I got rid of the uh, vinyl records. So yes, m- missed opportunity at supplementing easily the four hundred one k. Better than gold baseball cards <laughs> and vinyl. Wow. Vinyl albums are now coming back again, just as our flip phones are coming back again. Who guessed it? <laughs> Who would have guessed it? It's like neckties. Uh, they always change, but they just variations of the same thing. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Investment is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed.